this is Restless. Welcome to Restless, a postmortem on the young, restless, and reformed. And this is my second try at saying that I am your host, not a pro yet, Matt, and I am joined as always by Pastor Michael. Welcome. Good to be with you again, Matt. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad for all of our uh, listeners. We are doing something a little bit new for the show. We've had guests. We've talked through uh, the YRR and New Calvinism ourselves. And tonight, we are actually going to listen to one of the New Calvinists tell us what New Calvinism is. Yeah, so uh, we are going to jump in to John Piper, right? That's right. So as you know, Michael and I have thought that John Piper is a pretty central figure in the Young, Restless, and Reformed. And in 2014, he gave a lecture at Westminster Theological Seminary where he talked about the new Calvinism, and he explained it. He kind of went there in my mind, and Michael and I have both watched this, and we're going to play a few clips, as kind of an emissary to the movement to this big reformed uh, crowd. And so there he, he lays out what he calls his 12 features of Calvinism. You can find a link to the whole lecture in the show notes. And Tim Challies in an article actually pulled them out and we'll put those in the show notes. So you can look at those as we listen to the clips and we're just going to react to a few clips uh, from the sermon. Sounds good to me. I, uh, and I really enjoyed listening to it and uh, it should be a uh a good next step in yep. trying to delve into the intricacies of new Calvinism. It'll be good to hear directly from him what he thought new Calvinism was and be able to look at that, not just uh, for what it was, but also for what it has since become and the way things have changed. This is an hour long lecture. We are not doing the whole thing here today. Uh, we are not even doing everything he said directly on New Calvinism. We've just picked out a few clips. So we're jumping in to his reasons why he wanted to speak to Westminster about New Calvinism. We're going to join him because I thought his last two reasons were actually very interesting. Fourth, I am part of the New Calvinism and feel a fatherly responsibility to continually speak into it dimensions of truth that I think it needs to hear. And fifth, as a part of the new Calvinism, I have a debt to pay to Westminster Seminary and the lineage of reformed theology that you represent. There would be no new Calvinism without. Pastor Michael, I think one thing I want everyone to hear is you kind of talked about Piper as a fatherly figure he self-consciously viewed himself that way. He viewed himself as the father, as one of the fathers of new Calvinism. And for that reason, I mean, he says he feels a responsibility to both, yeah, promote it and then speak into it. And he, he believes he's doing both in this lecture. It's also interesting that he does, you know, I mean, he, he acknowledges that this is something that was made possible because of what you know he's going to term the old Calvinists, uh, those who uh, came before, those who were steeped in Reformed theology and teaching it before it was maybe picked up in these evangelical circles. Actually, the next clip we're going to play is Piper talking about how we can distinguish 
the old and the new and if we can do that at all. And so I thought this was a really interesting clip. So what is it? And the best way I know to define it is to give you 12 features of the movement as I see it. And I don't mean that the features are dividing lines between the old and the new. I don't think there are such dividing lines, at least not ones that you could put your finger on, unless it would be, in one case, the technology that is prominent in the new Calvinism that didn't exist 20 years ago, and therefore is not possible to have been part of the old Calvinism. I'm thinking Twitter and Facebook and blogging and internet websites and so on. So I don't think when I give you these features of the new Calvinism, you should be thinking in terms of, oh, that separates it from the old Calvinism. That's not the way I'm thinking. I'm calling them features, not distinctives, especially not unique distinctives. How can there be distinctives from the old when the old is as diverse as St. Augustine and Adoniram Judson, Francis Turretin and John Bunyan, John Calvin and Charles Spurgeon, John Knox and J.I. Packer, Cotton Mather and R.C. Sproul, Abraham Kuyper and William Carey, Lemuel Haynes and Robert Dabney, Theodore Beza and James Boyce, Isaac Bacchus and Martin Lloyd-Jones. If there is such a diversity in the old, then we really cannot find dividing lines between the old and the new. I don't think so. They're not there. And why would I include Packer and Sproul and Boyce among the old and not the new? How can you draw a line between the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, and the Gospel Coalition? Who can figure that out? How can you draw a hard line between the Banner of Truth publishers and Crossway Books? How can you draw a hard line between Elder G.J. Ward, who's going to be with the Lord now, Main Street Church, Lexington, Kentucky, and Tabiti Anyabwile? No, the old is, is too diverse, and the connections between the old and the new are too organic to claim things that are new in the new and weren't present in any form or aspects of the old. That's not true. The new is too diverse to claim any uniform downgrade from the old or upgrade. There's just no distinguishing them, Michael. Yeah, that's fascinating uh, that really what he just said is the only distinguishing factor between the old and new, as he terms it. The only distinguishing factor he just led on is the fact of technology, that those who came before did not have the internet and everything that it's brought uh, as far as connectivity and things like that and being able to get your message out and using twitter and those sorts of things otherwise he says there's no dividing lines but here's the problem then he goes ahead and he makes very clear statements of here's what i can obviously tell you is new calvinist and here's what i can tell you is obviously old calvinist right and everyone nods their head and goes yeah that's that's basically right yeah. So do you think maybe what he's trying to do or what he wants to do in his mind, especially as maybe more of a father figure, like he is, 
he is kind of spanning the gap a little bit, especially as a, a as a you know brilliant theologian like he is. He's a very intelligent man. Uh, he's benefited so much from many of these reformed theologians that have gone before. Um, maybe what he is just trying to do is trying to not like let those things be jettisoned, mm-hmm. right? Like he wants he wants to bring these two together, things that he's so connected with, uh, and doesn't. He doesn't want them to uh, be at odds. And so he's trying in every way that he can to say, hey, there is no division between us. We should be in this together. Before I I lay into this a little bit and and try and egg Pastor Michael into joining me, I (laughs) I do want to say that I think he makes one very valid point in this that I think we got into this in our interview with Les a little bit, that Friends, Reformed theology is the big tent. This, the the Reformed church is a Catholic church. And by that, I mean a universal church. It it is not exclusionary. And I know we just had like probably 25 listeners go, are you kidding me? You guys say (laughs) I have to believe a million things. (laughs) And, and that's, that's just, that's just not the case. It's just because we're comparing it to what's left of American evangelicalism. And there, there is like the goal in evangelicalism was how few things can we hold close. Roman Catholicism demands de fide every statement about Mary the church has defined, right? right. Um, Lutherans to obviously not a heretical extent, but they demand full subscription to everything. Yeah, to be in, to receive the supper, right? Reformed theology is the big tent. It is diverse. It is different, right? Like the continent, Britain, the colonies, as as Reformed theology has spread, right? The Westminster Confession of Faith is the largest held to confession in the world because it's held to in South Korea. It's held to in Africa. It's held to in America, right? It's all over. And yeah. I do think that is a good point. I, I want to make one other thing I think that you and I have said that I think is just, thanks, Piper. You are, you are, you're just, you're with us on this. Who aren't new Calvinists? J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, right? No, these right. guys, we respect them. We look to them and they're still alive. They're not yeah. new Calvinists though. Michael, I, I think he's wrong that technology is the only thing that distinguishes him because as he's going to list features, he's wrong, right? That the confession that the Westminster professors have to sign means they cannot agree with everything he's about to say right. as features of Calvinism, where there's no downgrade, no upgrade, no difference. You know, if our OPC friend is listening or any of our other OPC friends are listening, when he said, What's the difference between Crossway Books and um, what is it? Uh, the Banner of Truth. Banner I think truth. people just did a spit take into the, <laughs> into the sky. That like, like what do you mean? And and again, Piper knows you can distinguish them because he does. Because he's he, going to. He's and he's able to list. Here's here's some confessional the conf, Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Can you say there's a difference between that and the Gospel Coalition? Yes, and you just yeah. did. You, right. you know where you know what side to put people on. Yeah, the so, fact that you can contrast these shows right yes. there that there is a difference. That's my point. 
I wonder if part of it is what we've talked about, where if you try to boil down, you know, reformed theology into simply uh, the, you know, tulip, simply the, the, uh, you know, uh, kind of core teachings of uh, Calvinistic soteriology, if, if that's what you mean when you're talking about reformed theology, you're not defining it uh, in, you know, what we've talked about earlier in this podcast as a more uh, legitimate way of describing what reformed theology entails, uh, that y- you can say these things and mean it. Hey, we don't really disagree, right? Because this is what we're talking about. We're all in this together because these, you know, five points of Calvinism are what we're referring to. Right. And it's just now that he's going to get more broad than that into, you know, mostly practical issues, uh, though not exclusively, some doctrinal for sure. Uh, that is all of a sudden you start to see, no, there are clearly lines even even within that. Yeah. Let's let's listen to him describe his 12 features of Calvinism. Michael and I will we'll jump in because it's a, it's a longer clip uh, just to discuss them. And we will we'll describe it. That I think define the new Calvinism. Number one, the new Calvinism in its allegiance to the inerrancy of the Bible embraces the biblical truths behind the five points, TULIP, while having an aversion to using the acronym or any other systematic packaging, along with a sometimes qualified embrace of limited atonement. The focus is on Calvinistic soteriology but not to the exclusion or the appreciation of the broader scope of Calvin's vision. Number two, the new Calvinism embraces the sovereignty of God in salvation and in all the affairs of life and history, including evil and suffering. Third, the new Calvinism has a strong complementarian flavor as opposed to egalitarian with an emphasis on the flourishing of men and women in relationships where men embrace a call to robust, humble, Christ-like servant leadership. All right. He has just laid out three doctrinal distinctives of the new Calvinists. Michael, what degree do you think he's correctly expressing what you were getting from the new Calvinists? So uh, even in that first point, he talks about basically the new Calvinist embrace of inerrancy, which means embrace of the doctrines of grace, uh, specifically TULIP. And it's fascinating to me that he says that they have an aversion to using the acronym TULIP when that is exactly the opposite of what seems to be the truth. Uh, so one, I, I mean, Piper say. wrote a book called TULIP. <laughs> uh, but also like maybe, uh, you know, Piper again is um, like a deep thinker. Like he's a, he's a heavy hitting, like intellectual in, in some areas for sure. And so he's well-trained. And I wonder if this aversion is really his aversion, but mm-hmm. down on the levels where we were at, this is everything. Tulip, right? like baby. This is, oh, yeah. This is all it is. And so I think there are two things, because I do think when I saw that, I was like, these, I think, are actually, again, these are, he does a very good job describing it. Now, I think he's doing more than describing. I think he's advocating for all 12 of these things. But this is the one that I was like, I don't know, man. I was, I was like, you know, tulip or die, right? Right. I think that maybe what he's picking up on is, especially in the book, Young, Restless, and Reform, you hear people saying, like, I didn't come to Calvinism because of any system. I just read the Bible, right? And even in this point, you kind of see it a little bit that the doctrines of grace come from a 
a statement about the Bible, right? So we don't, we don't take anything systematically. We just, you know, we just derive it straight. Uh, this is just the straight biblicism in that way. I think somewhat, I think that, I think I can understand that as an accurate statement. Well, and that's even the, the fact that he says that uh, there is this kind of aversion to any kind of systematic packaging of these doctrines. That in itself is uh, obviously a true statement from what we've experienced, but that is one of the problems that we've brought up over and over is that there is no systematic uh, way of expressing these things. There is no doctrinal confessional uh, like exactly. standard. You, you want to know a difference all of these people have to R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, John Knox, right? List on forever all the people he, he mentioned. They all had a confession. They all explained Christianity through the lens of the church's systematic statements about the Bible. Yeah. Right. Michael, we have the next two statements. We have the statement on sovereignty, which I think our listeners would be most familiar with. And then um, the third statement on complementarianism. And I'll say it. I learned complementarianism from the new Calvinists. So I, I think this is a, uh, a fair, these are both fair readings. Yep. Obviously you have uh, the, you know, biblical manhood and womanhood coming from Piper and Grudem as the at least main editors, and they're kind of pushing this and popularizing it the most. And even though we just talked about how uh, the new Calvinists were uh, averse to uh, having any kind of systematic packaging, their systematic theologian was Wayne Grudem, very much so, right? Everybody had to have Wayne Grudem systematic theology. The fact that complementarianism is a big push is is, uh, very... I just love it, all it makes the, sense. I just love all the words used in this one. A nice strong complementarian yep. flavor. Some nice strong coffee flavored ice cream and you just throw a little bit of that <laughs> spice in there just a little yep. complementarian spice and isn't that kind of true, right? So Oh um, yeah. The flourishing is, of men and women. You know, this, this go ahead, sorry. This is what well, takes your recipe so, to the next level. So we're living in a time where you now have, you know, kind of the reaction to uh, complementarianism coming from the more egalitarian wings of the church where you have, you know, uh, recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood and how this was such a, you know, uh, horrible thing, basically. Uh, but one of the things you see even here is he talks about, you know, the emphasis on flourishing as men and women. Uh, he talks about this idea of like Christ-like servant leadership. Yep. So Robust, both flourishing and humble. servant leadership. Yeah, you have to, right? Robust. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, so these are both kind of ideas that are a little bit vacuous, and they're, they are just waiting for uh, definition. Exactly. And I think that you could make an argument that uh, outside of maybe a robust biblical definition of these things coming from the movement, and there were at times tr- like they tried. But the fact that it was, it never quite uh, came out and probably because they're adverse to systematics and thinking yep. systematically I about so. the doctrine of, of anthropology. Uh, this, this actually led to a lot of really problematic ways of viewing men and women, uh, especially you know, as far as complementarianism, which now seems to be falling apart in some capacity, uh, where you have kind of these really arbitrary ideas of men and women are basically the same, can basically do anything, except there's just these arbitrary lines between them as far as preaching and the leading in the home. 
And that just means that, you know, like the husband gets a 1% more vote on whatever matter there is, or, you know, the, the, the pastor is like, it's, it's not like he's really different, but you know, it's just cutting off nature from, uh, from how you view men and women. And it's just, again, not a systematic way of viewing men and women from, from scripture. And so this too is an area that did define new Calvinism, but you see that even starting to erode pretty heavily today. I think we see it eroding. I think you and I will be talking about this topic at full length. No doubt. Soon. No doubt. But I probably went too long there. You probably did, but it's so good because complementarianism said, what are the biblical statements we have to defend about men and women? Men are the head of the home. Uh, women can't preach. They submit the end. Not, not what men and women are, not what humanity is, just what you're saying. But if I don't, if I'm not going to try and have a systematic view of these things, then what I have to do is I kind of have to drum up de- descriptors of these, which make me feel better robust, humble, Christ-centered uh, leadership and flourishing, right? These, these, these things that actually don't explain like a lot. All right, let's, uh, let's keep moving. Fourth, the new Calvinism leans toward being culture affirming as opposed to culture denying while holding fast to some very culturally alien positions like positions on same-sex practice and abortion. Fifth, the new Calvinism embraces the essential place of the local church. It is led mainly by pastors, has a vibrant church planting, bent, produces widely sung worship music, and exalts the preached word as central to the work of God locally and globally. Sixth, the new Calvinism is aggressively mission-driven, including missional impact on social evils, evangelistic impact on personal networks, and missionary impact on the unreached peoples of the world. Seven, the new Calvinism is interdenominational with a strong, some would say, oxymoronic, baptistic element. Michael, would you say that's oxymoronic? (laughs) Sorry, I I just had to. I'm sorry. It Um. absolutely is. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sorry, sorry. He has to add, some would say... Baptists, we love you. Love to have you on the show anytime. Always welcome. <laughs> yes, yes, we love you. So, we really do. So, Michael, what do you make of these four? They're kind of all, um, I don't know if I want to call them a more, these are more ecclesiastical. These are social. These are um, cultural cultural things, not doctrine, like the straight doctrine ones we just uh, listened to. Yeah, it is really having to do with the the... Uh, ecclesiastical side, especially how the church interacts with the world, right? And so uh, it is culture affirming rather than culture denying. Uh, first, I mean, what is that again? So this is <laughs> oh, something I that, don't know. I don't know. I was going to This ask. is almost all of these are again, filled with these terms that are like, apart from definition, they become, uh, vacuous, right? They, they can be whatever you want them to be. So cultural affirming uh, could be, you know, well, we have, uh, we have hip hop artists that are Christians and they're rapping about theology. Okay. I mean, if, if that's what you mean by cultural affirming, like they're, they, they are engaged in cultural creation, right? Well, that's fine. I mean, that's, you wouldn't say, uh, you know, that there have been zero 
old Calvinists ever engage in cultural creation. Uh, but sure, okay, you know, whatever, whatever you want to say about that. Um, but he draws these lines right at same-sex practice and abortion. Yep. And those are kind of the things that we're not going to, you know, we're not going to step across. Right. Uh, and I think the new Calvinist institutions have essentially drawn their lines there. People are watching confusedly as, as leaders seem to make bad calls on lots of things, but they're like, but we will never budge on same-sex uh, practices or abortion, right? But everything else is up for grabs. And I think this, again, this idea that of culture affirming and culture denying, I think this is, as you and I talked about, I think this is him saying, and you even, even the example you gave of hip hop and is this is in youth culture. This is, we are Calvinism and we are doing it the way the kids want. Yeah. People like it. They're listening to our music outside of church. They're, yeah. you know, they're really excited about us online and yeah. that is what it means to be culture affirming. And, you know, you've mentioned on the podcast before about how you, you know, during this time, you were like, hey, in order to, you know, be a part of culture, that means I just listen to whatever I want and yep. say that I'm, you know, like doing it as a Christian or, or right. what have you. And so there's definitely an element of that. Uh, again, this is when Piper is speaking, like he is speaking from the upper echelons of the movement, right? Like he is, he is up in the clouds, not, you know, not to diss him at all, but, uh, what he sees and the way he sees it and wants it to play out and wants it to be, uh, there is a lot in it that is very noble. Right. But when you get down to the levels that we were at, what you find is that it really does not translate that way. Uh, it's, it's not actually going to work that way. So culture affirming was, well, I just get to be like the world. Right. That's just what you know it became for us. So uh, as far as the rest of these go, my question is, um, if really, if this really was a local church thing, cause I want to give him credit in one, in one case, I heard a lot more about the essentialness of the local church than I had before. Yeah. Right. Two, this thing did not spread via my involvement in the local church. Right. And most of the way this gets highlighted were not from venues of the local church. No, what you really have is, uh, this movement was centered around mega churches with well-known celebrity pastors who had multiple campuses, right? And so even here, you see that when he uses the word local church, it's, it means something different than uh, how many that he's talking to at Westminster are going to understand and define local church. It's interesting too. He does bring up that there's a Baptistic element. Uh, and so like that covers this a little bit, but you know, he focuses on the preached word and then you have kind of missing a little bit is what is the understanding of the sacraments? Mm -hmm. You get that again, uh, you know, there's a, there's a baptistic element. So, so you kind of, you, you can fill in the blank, but he doesn't specifically mention, you know, here's what the, the sacraments look like or the disciplinary, you know, uh, kind of accountability right. side or membership side of the church looks like the focus is a preach word, which is a great focus, right? I love the preach word, but as far as a, a, you know, thinking uh, broadly about what exactly is a local church and what is necessary for it to be a true church. Yes. Well, without, you know, mentioning sacraments and discipline, there is, there's, there's something clearly missing. 
for the sake of forming these interdenominational units to promote, to whatever you want to say, shepherd, whatever, you know, whatever good things you want to say they were doing at the gospel coalition at, uh, together for the gospel, right. Was the sacraments are not, obviously we can't rally around the sacraments, any of these things we can rally around justification by faith in the five points of Calvinism. So let's, let's call that essential and rally around those things. And also the, the church planning element. So when Piper's talking here, this is, he's at a time when the bubble is about to burst, right? Like the, the negative side of things, the negative side of let's train someone up over the course of several months, like Rob was talking about with, you know, these guys who are just coming in, they're being sent out right away without any training, without any accountability, without any help and uh, without long-term mentorship. And uh, how many of these guys ended up burning out and churches just fell apart and, and it was just a mess. Uh, Piper's speaking at the point when like the bubble has not quite burst, but it's getting really close. Like it's really about to happen. You're so right. I was going to say this. So this is in early 2014. Do you know what happens towards the end of 2014? Mars Hill Church closes, ends. This, I think, is the last time you get to be fully this optimistic as he is about the new Calvinist. So when he says mission-driven, I think you're right to focus on church planting because I think that was the emphasis. I actually think, honestly, evangelicalism is very missions-focused in all other areas. And yeah. probably in a lot of camps, surpassing what the new Calvinists were doing right? in these unreached areas, in even in some of the interaction with their community. But I think that as coming from evangelicalism, you know, those values, those values remained. And I just think that, yes, the emphasis was on church planting. I don't think there was that much more emphasis on unreached peoples or things. I think Piper would have liked that to be an emphasis because obviously that's a deep thing he cares about, which is excellent. But uh, let's go on. We're going to do, uh, I think, two things that um, are kind of a watershed. Yeah, this this is where we, we know you aren't, aren't the same. Eight, the new Calvinism includes charismatics and non-charismatics. Nine, the new Calvinism puts all, um, a priority on pietism or piety in the Puritan vein with an emphasis on the essential role of the affections in Christian living while esteeming the life of the mind and being very productive in it and embracing the value of serious scholarship. Jonathan Edwards would be invoked as a model of this combination of the affections and the life of the mind more often than John Calvin, whether that's fair to Calvin or not. I'll, I'll let you speak to the, the pietism. I'll speak to the charismatics. I, because of this and growing up, having no, no understanding, right? He doesn't say even charismatics and cessationists. New Calvinism includes people who are charismatics and people who don't do those things. I must tell everyone listening, reformed theology is cessationist. This means they believe the reformed churches as the Lutheran churches did, as the churches before that did, the gifts of the Holy Spirit given to the apostles, mainly things like healing, miracles, tongue speaking, uh, the ability to write scripture, 
have ceased. That is in every Reformed confession. Those people were refuted during the Reformation as hard as the Roman Catholics were. This is a huge shift. And I don't know that it's a shift that they chose to make, but in the 60s, the evangelicals in general embraced the charismatics who had kind of been on the outside. But with the Jesus people revivals, they were brought back kind of in. This is a significant difference between the old and the new. Uh, so he's speaking at Westminster. The vast majority of people he is speaking to are going to be cessationists. And I think it's true that cessationism was was such a, like, that was not actually in the realm of what was acceptable. I'm sure there were cessationists who were new Calvinists, but that that was not uh, understood as a an acceptable view. Yeah, I, I too had no idea this was a view anyone had. Michael, what do you think about this uh, statement about the pietism and this being the pietism found in New Calvinism? It's the Puritan version. This is very much Piper's thing, right? I mean, this is in a lot of ways at the heart of desiring God. This is uh, at the heart of what he does, especially as an Edwards scholar, as somebody who is so influenced by Jonathan Edwards, the, the place and use of the affections in uh, the life of a Christian and how that ties into the life of the mind is obviously a, a huge thing for Piper. And you read that, it, it, most books that you will read by Piper are going to address this, right? This is one of his, his major topics that he's going to hit. Um, I think he's right in that this is uh, a, a major marker of new Calvinism that actually is different from uh, old Calvinism. Uh, but he believes it to be a good thing, right? Whereas I don't think uh, how it plays out, it's going to show itself to be a good thing. And really, uh, when you could say this a different way, you could say uh, new Calvinism is evangelical as opposed to reformed. This does not mean that reformed theology has no place for the affections or for uh, emotions or something like that. If you read John Calvin, go read John Calvin's Institutes. You will not come away like unaffected by the the emotional strength of of how Calvin writes. He is very emotional, uh, but the difference is what is driving things, and this ties into you know the idea of charismatics versus non-charismatics as well. Uh, but like, what what is the driving force behind what you're doing? Is it the personal, internal, experiential, or is it the objective? revelation that comes from outside. Uh, and, and that is a, that is a serious difference. Uh, again, you, it's not that you can't have a place for the affections and for emotions, uh, in a reformed understanding of the world. You have to, right? God, God has given those things to us, right? God is not, uh, is, is not, uh, he did not create us without those things, right? God, God created us to be emotional, but the difference is what, is what is the driving force? And when he ties back to Edwards and when he ties back to, to the Puritans, uh, maybe to a lesser extent, it depends on which Puritans you're talking about, right? So we talk about the Puritans in a monolith. Uh, they're going to be different in how, in how you would look at them, but especially some of the American Puritans. Uh, he's talking about an era that was uh, just before and during the time of the Great Awakening, 
And I think that you can tie a lot of kind of American evangelical roots to much of what happened during the Great Awakening, where you have this desire that, hey, we have doctrine right. We know what is true. We know the objective, uh, the revealed. But now we want to make sure that people are affected internally by those things. And right. we need to find out a way to know whether they are or not. Right. And so the, it seems like we still have unconverted people around. That's right. So we need to find a way that we can pr like prove and see that these people are actually converted. How do we do that? Well, we see it through their emotions and their experience. And this is extremely dangerous. And, you know, like there were many blessings of God that came from the Great Awakening and many good things that I'm not uh, trying to cast tons of shade on the Great Awakening. Uh, I do think that it was a tremendous move of God in many ways. But one of the negative sides, one of the unforeseen consequences is that American Christianity uh, and, you know, leading up into American evangelicalism, of which we've said New Calvinism really is a part. It has been affected by that side of the awakening that was focused on uh, what matters most is the personal, internal, experiential side of religion. And as soon as you even divide those things as if they are, you know, uh, not, not so closely tied, right? You don't need the life of the mind. He, you know, he says here, there is this esteem for the life of the mind. There, there is this desire to be thoughtful and productive and academic because he doesn't want to get rid of that. And Piper does in his own life, bring those two things together. And but, Jonathan Edwards would have too, right? These... Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, the, the emphasis, especially again, maybe, you know, maybe not where Piper's at, but down here where you and I are at, when we're these young men and we hear these things and, and we start getting involved, the focus is on your personal experience. And I'm getting Calvinism from these high powered conferences, very good speakers, right? This is an experience. And I do think it is interesting that the things you held you contrasted the experience of the Christian and the objective revelation. He actually contrasts the life of the mind and the subjective experience, right? That, well, we don't, you know, that some people think we become too emotional to have a life of a mind. And that's not what he's saying, but it's also a different contrast than what you're drawing. Let's, let's go through our last three and see if we can sum all this up. Ten. The new Calvinism is vibrantly engaged in publishing books and even more remarkably, in the world of the internet, with hundreds of energetic bloggers and social media activists, with Twitter as the increasingly default way of signaling things, new and old, that should be noticed and read. 11. The New Calvinism is international in scope, multi-ethnic in expression, culturally diverse. There is no single geographic, racial, cultural, governing center. There are no officers, no organization, nor any loose affiliation that would encompass the whole. I would dare say that there are outcroppings of this movement that nobody, including me in this room, has ever heard of. Twelve, the New Calvinism is robustly gospel-centered, cross-centered, with dozens of books rolling off the presses, coming at the gospel from every conceivable angle and applying it to all areas of life with a commitment to seeing the historic doctrine of justification finding its fruit in sanctification personally and communally. Last three, book publishing, international scope, gospel-centered thinking. 
So one of the things he mentions is online activism. And this is fascinating because, you know, this is still earlier on in kind of the social media world. You know, you've had it for you now, you know, it's been several years once, once Piper is speaking here, but, uh, but it's fascinating that, that he ties that in as one of the major driving forces is how quick you publish things, how many bloggers we have, how many social media activists that are, that are uh, showing you what you should be interested in, what you should be focusing on. And uh, isn't that just our culture in general? Uh, even still to this day, that is like, yep. that is how you get information. Uh, but you see how this was such a core, as we've talked about the techno, the technological aspect of this was such a core uh, mover and, and shaper of the movement. This is maybe one of the biggest distinctions between new and old Calvinists, especially between my Presbyterian friends, like Pastor Michael, the the, the Reformed Baptist ones, the classical Reformed Baptists. Who, who, led, who led Reformed theology in the old Calvinists? Well, let me, let me list a few things. Officers, uh, <laughs> ordained leaders, councils, presbyteries, right? All the things he said, we don't have any of this. Who leads new Calvinism? Social media activists, Twitter, energetic writers who can publish gospel-centered books from every angle as fast as they possibly can. And how much did we go to those guys, right? How much did we, we went to Tim Challies and we went to the latest sermon from all of these different men. And that is where we decided to get our uh, discipleship rather than from the local church where our local officers were. And the books were rolling off the presses, right? There was because this was coming through youth culture, they recognize what is youth con culture currently in so much demand of, which is probably why we're making this podcast. Content. Content yep. is king. Everything needs content right now. And the new Calvinists figured out how to produce it. Well, so next he, he talks about, uh, you know, the new Calvinism, it's international, it's multi-ethnic, it's culturally diverse, right? Almost assuming that that's not true of old Calvinism. It talks about, you know, no single geographic, racial, cultural governing center. Right. Uh, there's no officers, there's no organization. Uh, there's there's just these, you know, or any uh, loose, loose affiliation. affiliations. Not even so, a loose one. <laughs> right. So what he just described is evangelicalism. Yes. Right. Like what he just described is like the non-denominational kind of Christian movement. Uh, he's not describing actually anything new. That's what's interesting. So, uh, you know, it's called new Calvinism, but but what he's describing is just exactly the same as things have been in the evangelical world. It's really not anything different. I think what's new about it is that these men in these churches, like I mean, like us, discovered uh, what was a biblical doctrine, right? What was a truth, and it was this you know red pill moment. All of a sudden everything's clear. And then it was just assumed, well, now that we have this, we're good, we're done, we've got it. And yet what you find here even is that it was still just the same old, same old, right? It, and, it was the same as it was. And fortunately, they had a hundred online personalities ready to feed us what we wanted and, and a lot of good stuff. Tim Challies put up puts out lots of good stuff. Oh, fantastic. I learned so much, right? I, I benefited so much. I really did. And, and is it was it because their content was robustly gospel-centered, cross-centered? 
centered everything so so much centered center church i am a centered i'm a center this podcast is centered by the way i just (laughs) want everyone to know that we're a very centered podcast uh this this too when when he talks about uh you know this gospel centeredness all this stuff coming out about cross-centeredness that this was uh you know coming at this from every conceivable angle and applying it to all areas of life that's actually what i would say is one of the weakest parts of this whole movement. I love it. This is the perfect place to end. Michael, Pastor Michael Bowman has just announced gospel-centered, cross-centered theology, writing, and practice is the weakest, one of the weakest things to come out of New Calvinism. And we're going to give him the closing moments of the podcast to explain why. Because recently, I've suddenly become worried he might be right. So that's going to scare a lot of people the way that you just frame that. It's going to make like me sound like a horrible people. person. Well, I just, uh, you know, like I don't think the gospel's too great or something like that. Uh, so obviously the, the gospel is the foundation of all things, right? I mean, this is the, the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ is the center of all things. And everything is actually summed up in Christ, right? All things are, are, are from him and through him and to him. Amen. Amen. I am 100% in. That is what my life is all about. The problem with the gospel-centered movement, right, in all the books that were gospel-centered this, gospel-centered that, cross-centered this, the problem with those is that they had a, a peripheral understanding of the scripture with maybe a focus on, you know, a handful of texts from the scripture, and then trying to fit all the rest of the Bible into those texts, Instead of saying the whole of the Bible is about Jesus, not in this, not in this shallow way, right? Not in this way that everything is about these five passages from the gospels alone, but in that every single word of scripture in some way or another does have its fulfillment in Christ. And so uh, this is where I would basically argue uh, that uh, what you have in this movement is an immaturity uh, that is called out in the book of Hebrews. So uh, in Hebrews, at the end of chapter five, Hebrews chapter five, verse 11, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And then starting chapter six, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ, right? That's gospel centeredness. That's right. Cross-centered. Let's leave those things, not leave them behind and get rid of them, right? But, but standing upon those as the foundation, let's leave uh, the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. What was just described there is every sermon that came out of New Calvinism, is every single one. And maybe, sure, that's hyperbole, but that's, that's what I heard. That's what I learned. And as a, like, if you are a new believer, that is awesome, right? That is, a, that is the foundation, but it did not go beyond there. Instead of uh, going throughout the whole of the scripture and saying, look, 
every single little bit of this is summed up in Christ. All of it points to him. All of it explains something about his glory. And that includes things that are going to tell you how to live because you are in Christ and what it looks like to follow him and take up your cross daily. Please rate and review this podcast with only five stars. We will be back next week with more great content. The only problem with that episode that we just did is that because Piper covers a million things, we're just like, hey, this, this will, <laughs> every single one of these topics could be a full episode. That's right. That's and right. So-